But in the next five years, you will see large scale factories being built that for the first time that will start to demonstrate those economies of scale on the input side that will enable price parity to be accomplished. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CBG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, great company and great uh, participant here, Lou Cooperhouse, who is CEO of an amazing company called Blue Nalu. Uh, Lou, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Gary. Excited to be on your podcast. So we're going to we're going to hear a lot about Blue Nalu, but before we do, let's give our listeners if you would Lou please a, a little bit about your personal background. You have sort of a unique personal background. You've got an academic side, an incubator side, an industry side, and now of course an entrepreneurial side. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about all that? Thanks, Gary. Uh, in my background, although it, it's in a different, a variety of different settings, it, it's been somewhat consistent in food innovation, technology commercialization, and also a lot of startup experience. So initially, my background, I, I actually went to school at Rutgers in microbiology and food science, and I started working in large companies, uh, Campbell Soup, and then subsequently ConAgra, and then a Nestle-funded startup. But in all cases, I was involved with startups in large companies. So in those days, uh, and I guess sometimes they still do call that entrepreneurship, um, really working on a, a brand new business segments within an established uh, organization like that. And it was a fabulous learning experience, frankly. And um, but my roots have always been R&D and operations uh, as, as new companies and new businesses get started up. And uh, later on, I um, became a uh, co-founder of a company that kind of pioneered uh, uh, medical nutrition and also foods for more uh, lifestyle management in addition to disease management uh, back in the mid 90s. So I've been doing startups for a long time. Uh, and that company work on kind of uh, early pioneer and gluten free products and meals for diabetics uh, and even other conditions as well. Um, and then for the last uh, 20 years, uh, from the year 2000, I kind of uh, work in a different environment, as you mentioned, work in an academic environment at Rutgers again, kind of came full circle. But in this case, I actually uh, was the executive director of a incubator program that supported startups. So it was kind of using my experience to help others. Um, and during that time, frankly, Gary, I, I kind of got uh, personally kind of excited and motivated about what I saw was a very transformative time in the food industry, uh, this whole growth in alternative proteins. And that ultimately led to uh, me starting my own company versus helping others uh, and, and the launch of Lunalu. Sounds like a lot of serendipity, all of it coming together, and now this huge movement for all alt protein. So, tell tell our listeners all about Blue Nalu. Sure, yeah, yeah actually, um, wh- while I was doing a fair amount of consulting and running this incubator program at Rutgers, um, I became fascinated with this whole transformation that really begins with the consumer. You know, a migration from foods that were, you know, great tasting or healthy or local or have other kind of health benefits like that or other benefits to foods that were more about sustainability and more experiential and, and more, you know, much more in the storytelling business, if you will. And, and consumers, I just really saw the shift happening over the last 15, 20 years. And it got manifested by all the things that we're now seeing today that are really going, you know, quite, quite crazily, you know, on around the planet, you know, initially with plant-based products. So we saw the whole 
you know, alternative milk category grow. And I started working with alternative uh, companies in the meat category, the cheese category, using plant-based ingredients. And I became personally fascinated with the technology that was first shown as proof of concept in 2013, you know, using cell culturing processes to make not a imitation product, but a same as product in vitro, what was first called, you know, making a, a product in a new way from its actual cells. So this, I literally called this the holy grail, you know, the most transformative thing I've ever heard of to manufacture animal product without the animal, you know, was enormous. But then I was saying to myself, it's amazing that it began on the terrestrial animal side with hamburgers in that example, but the real opportunity I saw was seafood, you know, applying that technology with a category that was really quite ripe for transformation, um, particularly how vulnerable and how variable our supply chain of seafood and, and also the fact that it's uh, increasingly compromised with microplastics and pollutants, um, toxins, parasites, mercury, et cetera, you know, and comes from such long distance with such a horrible environmental footprint with animal suffering, but also bycatch and uh, issues with trawling to the bottom of the ocean and so many, so many situations to make seafood a new way, I thought would be so transformative, such an opportunity. And that was the launch of Lunalu. And answer your second question, Nalu is actually the Hawaiian word for wave. And, and it's really about a new wave of thinking um, and more sustainable choices. Um, and I was actually speaking at a conference in Hawaii, of all things. And Hawaii happens to be in the center of the Pacific Ocean, where much of our global seafood supply comes from. So I really took it, took it to heart, you know, coming up with the name of the company, uh, really back to our roots and paying, paying homage to Hawaii, uh, which is uh, really such an amazing place in general, but really 2,500 miles from any, any major landmass and really uh, creating that awareness around the ocean uh, and how important it is that we preserve that ocean so future generations can really be able to feed themselves. So long answer to question, but... That's kind of how we all got started. And my goal was to really demonstrate global leadership in this category by literally being a supply chain solution, really providing great tasting product that uh, can ultimately become a global company. We're based in San Diego, but we're very much uh, trying to position ourselves to be a global solution. Uh, fantastic story, fantastic mission. So many guests on this podcast work for a mission-driven company, but it, yours is trying to make a quantum leap with that with that mission. And even there's even been some discussion on nomenclature in in this alt protein space. Uh, one of our prior guests was Barb Stuckey of Matson. Uh, she and Matson worked with the good. Food Institute to try to figure out what the best naming conventions should be for this space. And uh, they did a study a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, it started with in vitro, as you say, cell-based, cultivated, cultured. You know, Lou, tell our listeners, where, where is your head at? What do you, what do you think is, is the best naming convention at this point in time? Yeah, thanks for that question, Gary. I think what's important is not what... Um, what consumers want or what we think it's really what the regulatory agencies would like to see, you know, so in the, in the world of nomenclature, you know, there is obviously 
uh, there's words that are descriptive of the process or the product, but then there's, of course, brands. And at the end of the day, it's about brands that get consumers motivated to try products. But we had to answer a fundamental question that the FDA, the USDA, and other regulatory agencies need to uh, make uh, get closure upon. And it is not so much about what the product is called. It's, it's to make sure that the product is not confused with something else. Mm-hmm. So, as, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I've actually worked in the medical foods area, so I'm familiar with nomenclature uh, and some labeling issues associated with products in different situations. And it's very important to the FDA, for example, that the product is not seen as misrepresenting. And we want to also work in collaboration with the meat, poultry, in our case, seafood industry. And today, consumers have two choices. They may not necessarily know the difference in in that, but there's wild caught and there's farm raised. So we are a third choice. But what should that third choice be called? And we actually um, found that there was no uh, scientifically driven study that anybody had done anywhere in the world um, that really came up with a methodology that would be appropriate for nomenclature from a regulatory point of view, not a consumer point of view. And um, so we actually uh, sponsored research that was independently conducted by Dr. Bill Holman at Rutgers, actually, who formerly chaired an FDA risk communication advisory task force and is very familiar with the methodologies that the FDA would want to look at when it comes to nomenclature for what's called a common or usual name. And uh, he actually looked at the 100 or so names that were used out in, in industry in some way um, and identified those that he thought were most appropriate, um, not being disparaging to others that were helping to identify that in our case, the product is, is allergenic. If you're allergic to seafood, you're allergic to bunalus, we want to make sure people know that too. So he came up with a set of criteria for uh, making an appropriate decision for nomenclature and the end of the day, cell-based or cell-cultured is important to have the word cell in there um, as, as a, uh, an adjective that helps consumers understand not necessarily what it is, but they understand what it's not. The word cultivated or cultured by itself created confusion with farm-raised in the case of seafood. So cell-culture was the name that we just ultimately decided was most appropriate um, as being a name that we thought would generate consumer adoption, but also uh, appease uh, any regulatory concerns or industry concerns about it being potentially confused with wilder farms. So uh, even the National Fisheries Institute uh, wrote a letter in support of cell culturing together with uh, an alliance of uh, of cell culture companies uh, called the Alliance for Meat, Poultry, Seafood Innovation. So we were very much a catalyst and really generating that industry support for a uh, consistent name that would be appropriate for this category. So to answer your question, cell-cultured, uh, again, is, is merely a name that describes a process. It's not the brand. It will never be the brand, but it's just really a way that helps differentiate our product from wild or farmed in our case. Mm-hmm. So cell-cultured. So, and, and Lou, as we all know, there's a lot of uh, – companies operating in this space now, uh, companies making progress on the poultry side like Just, the the beef side like uh, Memphis Meats, which has now been rebranded as Upside Foods, 
and there's others and so as as we look at the lay of the land it seems like there's there's it always comes back to two big meta issues two overriding issues which is number one economy of scale so can can you all succeed in competing on a cost base with actual harvested animal protein and then number two sustainable inputs you know in the in the early days there were things like bovine serum used to uh, to cultivate cells to to make uh, the option to live animals and obviously that didn't accomplish anything so to tell our listeners what where do you think the technology is and is it is it gonna is is it gonna jump to these challenges and how soon no, well, I'm very excited, Gary. That that we're that you're absolutely right. This economy of scale is uh, is a is a real issue on the on the input side and the and the supply chain side in our situation. Um, you know, realizing that in, this industry originated from mammalian cell culture technology using farmer grade inputs, um, not just the animal based ingredients as you described, but also the crazy cost structure. For for uh, a gazillion dollars per gram, that's a obviously a made up number, but it's crazy numbers. Um, this industry is food grade, you know, which 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 you know very well. So we're you know we're migrating from farmer grade to food grade. Uh, so you know the the the, uh, the 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 volume and associated with that, and the quality um, purity associated with that, are something that the food industry knows very well. Uh, so economies of scale is something that we're very excited by. So we're seeing companies on the feed side, in our case, Nutreco uh, or Cargill uh, has actually funded other companies in the space. So we're seeing, you know, uh, global uh, uh, commodity companies getting involved in this industry to really help drive uh, those costs down over time. So it, it, it will clearly happen. And we're, we're all made great accomplishments in accomplishing you know, various aspects of animal free. Uh, we are at Blue Nala, we're certainly committed to an animal free uh, media composition. The only animal that will be will clearly be seafood because that's what we are, but no other animal products are really part of our own commitment. But the whole industry has really adopted that as well. So I, I'm very confident that we will see, uh, we just all need to uh, migrate through pilot scale uh, basis into uh, our first large scale factories but the next five years, you will see large-scale factories being built um, uh, that for the first time that will start to demonstrate those economies of scale on the input side um, that will enable price parity to be accomplished. The one thing that Blue Nalo has as a, uh, arguably a bit of an advantage is our price parity is a higher value, increasingly escalating seafood product. You know, blue mm-hmm. tuna, red snapper, mahi-mahi, you know, the finfish species that, uh, if you will, is kind of the ribeye steak equivalent of the meat side. You know, some of the some of our peers uh, working on cell culture technologies uh, are working on more lower value products like chicken nuggets or hamburger products. So our price parity, you know, equivalent is something that's a bit higher up up the uh, on, on the uh, uh, on the on the cost comparative basis. So our opportunity uh, of, of achieving that uh, hopefully can be a bit faster than 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 having a lower value uh, parity product. Mm-hmm. And have have you sequenced or prioritized specific species, fin fish species, and 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 does that? 
price, you know, play into it. You know, if you're if you're going to cater to consumers who will spend large sums of money for fatty tuna at a sushi restaurant, is is that part of your thinking, or have you even gotten to that prioritization yet? No, we're definitely thinking that way, Gary. We're we're um, you know, our focus as a company, you know, from day one was really about being a supply chain solution and demonstrating a platform technology that could uh, ultimately do a wide array of species. So, you know, my goal in starting the company was, you know, what does success look like? And success looks like in the future, you know, a factory that can literally no longer be, you know, no longer be a supply restricted seafood model, but a demand driven model. So if we could do any array of different finfish species, uh, if a particular species was no longer available around the world or went on the watch list or an algae bloom destroyed, you know, the supply or whatever it might be, we could literally, you know, so to speak, turn it on, you know, and a couple of weeks later be having volumes coming out of that particular species that's no longer available. So it really becomes a demand driven model than a supply restricted model. And, you know, that's really been been our objective. I'm going to put in a plug for fatty tuna. Love it. Uh, also, yellowtail. I love that, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, at Blue Nala, we're really focused on, on finfish species, as we discussed. But our first species that we want to launch with are mahi-mahi and also bluefin tuna. And what's really interesting at both of these species is mahi-mahi is a, is a more lean fish, typically served in a cooked form, uh, more in a fast casual type environment for appetizers and entrees. Bluefin tuna typically served in the raw form, uh, much more fatty in texture and flavor, um, and typically served in more fine dining restaurants. So by having these two species uh, and the two different, you know, product applications that they both represent, we're really able to, you know, get a great deal of confidence about consumer attitudes, how to best position these products, and then on the technology side, to really be able to develop products um, that are both lean and fatty. Uh, so two species will result in a great deal of learnings for us as we go forward in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So that's great. You, it sounds like you're, you're pretty confident. It's exciting to hear you say that you think in the next five years we're going to see large commercial scale plants being, uh, being developed um, to manufacture these products. And it sounds like you're you're pretty sanguine on the uh, material inputs um, that 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 those can be sustainable as well. So that's all all great. Let's assume those two big issues get worked out: the economy of scale and the material inputs. What, Lou, what do you see as other obstacles? Do you see consumer acceptance issues or any other sort of obstacles that need to be overcome? I don't. I don't see consumer acceptance, Gary. I, I, we've actually done some consumer research ourselves. You know, obviously without product, just to kind of understand, you know, attitudes towards the the concept of cell culture, mahi mahi, for example. And uh, we've been very excited by the results. You know, uh, one thing that's unique about seafood versus terrestrial animals is, at the consumer level, there's a human health issue that we heard resonated with consumers. You know, there's obviously an awful lot of issues about greenhouse gas emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and so many reasons to work on terrestrial animal products. But there's a human health issue that really manifested in our uh, consumer research with consumers. We heard them describe 
mercury, microplastics, environmental pollutants, parasites even. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a familiarity uh, with, you know, so there, you know, we heard, we heard that consumers are conflicted, that they want to have more seafood in their diet for health, but they also hear issues about potential unhealthy situations, you know, and, and they don't know what they don't know. They, they are increasingly aware of, of microplastics in the ocean. They're, they made the leap in their head about it migrating into fish and then therefore into their own body. They don't know what the future might tell us about that. So, you know, they're excited by, so we clearly heard a great deal of interest in trying our products uh, because of the health benefits of seafood, but also the health benefits of not having some of the negatives that are associated with seafood. So it's a double win there. You know, we've also heard, Gary, from restaurateurs, a great deal of interest in Blue Knowledge products for all the things we described. But another thing that's unique to seafood versus land animals is the word that came out was consistency. They, they, today, they're, they're dealing with a great deal of variability in their supply chain. They don't necessarily trust their supplier. It's not always fresh. It's not always even there. And the price point jumps all over the place. There's great seasonality. Um, it's, this is the fundamental reason why it says market price for the catch of the day at a restaurant because there's all this variability. So a Blue Nalu, with this demand-driven model, we can now have a product that's available year-round um, at a consistent price and quality so we end 100% yield. So we really solve a great problem that exists today in the back of the house. Mm -hmm. It sounds terrific. And, you know, most consumers these days are aware of issues like mercury and microplastics. So how about, how about safety? You really haven't mentioned that directly. But if, if I go to a sushi restaurant, am I, am I likely to uh, not get sick if I eat a, 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 a blue Nalo product versus, uh, you know, an ocean caught product. That's, that's absolutely our goal, Gary, is um, there won't be any of the parasites or pathogens or histamine or mercury that you might find in a, occasionally in a, a conventional product. So, and we're demonstrating with the FDA uh, and with the public that our products are absolutely safe. And uh, so, Again, we're excited to have all the positives of seafood without any of the negatives. So clearly, for consumers that are concerned about safety, um, and, and frankly, the desire to have raw seafood in their diet, uh, and for pregnant or nursing women mm -hmm. who today have three choices, uh, they're advised to have zero, one, or two to three servings of seafood in their diet per week, four ounces is a serving, um, they can now be unrestricted and have as much as they want because there is no mercury concern. So, you know, it really is a paradigm uh, change big time uh, for those kind of vulnerable populations that can now not have any reason to be concerned about consuming seafood at all. I'm here with Lou Cooperhouse, who is CEO of Blue Nalu. Um, Lou, uh, 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 over three years ago, Paul Shapiro, who was a guest on this podcast, wrote a very popular book called Clean Meat, and he, he explored a lot of these issues that we've been talking about with uh, cell-cultivated food and, and uh, the challenges, but also the, the huge upside. So if you look back since when he wrote that book uh, over the last three years, where... 
Where, where have things really taken off, and, and where, in your view, has progress stalled or been more challenging? I think that we're all very excited. I think when uh, I know Paul pretty well, and, uh, and actually the, one of the first books I purchased was his Clean Meat book, um, and uh, he actually has visited with us in San Diego as well. So the long story short, I think many of us thought, investors thought, founders thought that this would maybe be 10, 15 years away uh, three years ago. But I think that we're all very excited by um, the, you know, the, the speed of a couple of things, the speed of, uh, of how found, founders of these various companies around the world have actually done proof of concepts um, that have demonstrated whether beef or poultry or pork or in our case seafood, we're all beginning to demonstrate that it can be done. Um, as we mentioned earlier, it's all about scale production now. And we've also seen um, the investment in this space is still very small. We've seen huge growth in plant-based uh, products, you know, as we all know from the public offering of Beyond Meat and Impossible. And, and even we know each us even today announced another financing. So there's an awful lot of investment in the space. That's very exciting and very motivating as well. But what's also shifted is the investment has not just come from mission-aligned uh, socially driven investors, but you're now seeing uh, venture organizations and strategic organizations that are participating. So in just a few years time, uh, you have multinational leading companies in meat, poultry, and seafood that are participating in this category because they see the opportunity about how to feed the planet in the years ahead. They are not at all uh, fighting with us. They are cooperating with us and collaborating with us. So the level of partnerships has begun. Very exciting. And, and lastly, a big change is we're seeing, uh, you know, it was great to see Singapore be the first nation in the world to uh, uh, approve a product into the marketplace. Mm. Um, and now we're seeing other nations, FDA and USDA, have gotten together, developed a framework for uh, regulatory approval of these products. Uh, and nations, uh, EU has established novel foods regulation and various nations in Asia are beginning the process as well. So a great deal has happened. So much had to be accomplished, but the good news is the companies are being created, proof of concepts are being demonstrated, the investors have shifted uh, towards uh, those that could really help us all be successful, the strategics getting involved. Uh, and we're also seeing uh, national governments being very supportive uh, towards uh, embracing this technology. They need to understand it. Um, but it all begins with that willingness, and that willingness has clearly been shown around the world with these national governments, too. So a lot has changed, and hopefully the future will be just as bright. Mm, mm, exciting. So this is a good segue to maybe pivoting to innovation in general. Um, you're, you're certainly, Lou, in one of the most innovative sectors of the food and beverage industry. So when you step back and you look at the folks you've, you've worked with at past jobs and, and now that you're working with at Blue Nalu, um, what, what sort of mindsets or qualities do you find uh, that characterize top innovators you've worked with and admire? I guess, Gary, you know, one way to, to think about it is um, uh, I, I always begin, and I've, I've been a mentor to many startup companies too and a consultant and run an incubator program and so forth. And it, to me, it all begins with um, thinking like an investor. An investor is talking about, first they want to know, 
what problem are you solving? You know, um, so we talked about all the problems that Blue Nala was solving, not just a cell culture process, but applying that in the right in the right space that makes the most sense with the right product composition and the right go-to-market strategy. So it all has to do with, you know, what the investors call TAN, the total addressable market. How big is this market? You know, and what specifically is is your approach to solving that market and creating a niche with a competitive moat that could really allow you, enable you to be ultimately successful? You know, being successful in the short term makes no no value at all. It's long term success. And that's really thinking through this very holistically. You know, what what kind of team members do you need? What kind of talents do you need in the case of? You know, Blue Nalu and manufacturing seafood directly from fish shells never been done before. So, so how do you how do you look at all the barriers to success, frankly, and see them as opportunities? Um, and what kind of talents do you need? And how do you really approach this in a very holistic fashion? Um, so, the talents I look for is really, uh, if you will, a non-linear approach. You know, those who think linearly, who uh, I will get to letter C after I get letter A and letter B figured out mm-hmm. in my alphabet. You know, to me, it's what does letter Z look like? What does large or even letter, you know, M look like? You know, what does midpoint success look like or large scale success look like in this alphabet of successes? And um, so it's really working backwards from that and really putting the building blocks in place and the right team in place uh, that will enable you to get there over time. And frankly, it's, it's the willingness to pivot along the way because you will learn incrementally and uh, it's never a straight line. So you need to be prepared to pivot all the time. It's also success and it's also failure and, and learning from both of those. And that, that kind of leads into our next question, which is, can you share any stories uh, either at uh, Blue Nalu or at, at previous companies that with our listeners uh on the success side or the failure side of the equation where it was where it was a point of learning yeah no no one particular story that makes sense but i think it's just really um uh even the word failure is is really about you know as we all talk about it's uh uh the freedom to uh there is you know failure is part of success you know as you've heard from many founding stories you know everything is a learning experience so, so you know, I think the key is to really have parallel pathways, um, go down a pathway, but also have other opportunities that, you know, that can also create success. And as they say, fail fast. Failure is, is a wonderful learning experience, you know, and um, uh, I think the one acronym for that is first attempt and learning is F-A-I-L. You know, so, so hmm. you know, I certainly believe in that. And uh, it's really about uh, you know, just going, re- being ready for that second and third and fourth attempt until success manifests itself. And, and again, it's really having the end in mind um, and, and really being able to pivot along the way uh, as early as possible. And particularly in brand new areas that have never been done before, um, it's certainly quite critical. Mm-hmm. So, so looking at your challenge and looking at the years ahead, what do you think some of the biggest ongoing speed bumps are that uh, that that you and uh, Blue Nulu uh, face going forward, Lou? Yeah, it's it's uh, when we began the company. You know, uh, it was in every possible area 
uh, on the technology side, nobody's ever propagated, you know, commercial uh, fish shells before. Uh, and then trying to do that without genetic modification, you know, ideally, and trying to do that uh, without the use of uh, any any ingredients that might, you know, cause any kind of consumer opposition. You know, number two, regulatory issues uh, around the world, never been done before. It's the ultimate, you know, uh, challenge, if you will. Um, never approved anywhere in the world when we got started. Uh, and nobody ever built a factory. Nobody knows what success even looks like. And you're working from a farmer grade model and trying to migrate that to a food grade model. You know, so engineering operations. But in the end of the day, it's food. And really to make sure that this product would be labeled appropriately, um, but also have the, um, the same same sensory characteristics as conventional products, but made differently. So, again, so many challenges existed. You know, so we're very excited by, you know, having really made a great deal of progress in all those areas by really approaching this very holistically from the beginning. But, you know, clearly our the biggest challenge ahead is all about scale production. And that's why we kind of put in place, Gary, this whole five-phase strategy that every species needs to go through each of these phases. So if it's, if, you know, take again those examples of bluefin tuna and, and mahi-mahi, or maybe somebody else might be working on, on a ribeye steak or a sirloin steak or ground beef. Every product form and type really perhaps has a different process involved. In fact, it probably does in all cases. Some elements of process will be modified. So, you know, we're, we're all trying to um, crack this whole massive protein category, one species and one product form at a time. So the challenges are quite enormous because every different product form and species really presents unique issues. Um, we, we're not necessarily going to be able to solve them all, but if we can you know, clearly uh, provide consumers with new choices in various uh, sectors and subsectors, we've done a, a huge benefit for our planet. So um, again, just uh, a lot of challenges ahead of us, but it's really all about matching that culinary experience that consumers expect um going one product at a time and then doing that at, at commercial scale levels so uh really the big challenges are ahead of us when it comes to that mm -hmm. so lou what can you share what's next for you personally and for blue nilu yeah gary we're, we're currently um uh building out a forty thousand square foot facility in san diego um, back to my five-phase strategy, you know, that'll allow us to do what we call phase two and phase three is to manufacture products for both uh, uh, to meet the requirements of, of FDA or other jurisdictions around the world in a, in a very small scale way, but also to make products in what we call phase three, you know, a bit of a larger capacity uh, that will allow us to actually enter into a test market. So two objectives you know, getting products through the regulatory uh, process, and secondly, to get products in limited scale. So it's a bit of an innovation center where we could continually launch new species and new forms. And, and frankly, Gary, what that does is it, it kind of gives, gives all of us confidence to then build large-scale factories because, you know, we can be able to demonstrate, you know, maybe it's only a few hundred pounds per week of, say, bluefin tuna, uh, if we can get that into commerce in a small way, that creates such, so much confidence to then go to the next step and build a large-scale factory. So what we're doing here is this innovation center is that proving ground uh, to really demonstrate product acceptance, 
uh, and regulatory approval um, in, a, in some level of a commercial facility, it doesn't demonstrate profitability, but it does demonstrate, you know, proof of commercialization uh, and, and proof of commercial and consumer acceptance, which kind of gives us the rights to go forward with uh, our next large scale factory. So that's what's ahead for us the next couple of years. And that, that construction is currently in process right now in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And when, when, when do you think that 40,000 square foot facility will be up and running? We're actually doing that in phases, Gary. So we're, we're actually, uh, construction has already started. Um, so, uh, between, uh, late this year and, uh, all of next year, we'll be doing continual, um, uh, evolutions of our manufacturing process, uh, and our, and our commercial process as well. So it's really uh, an 18 month process that will begin this fall. Sounds, sounds great. So Lou, I ask all of our guests the same question. It's a two part question. Uh, what, what advice would you give to, two different sets of folks. First, innovators who are already working in the food and CBG space. And then second, new people just starting their career in, uh, in this space. What, what advice would you give? I guess to, to the first, um, you know, my advice is really, uh, you know, my definition of thinking outside of the box is, is thinking outside of your, of your team. You know, it's really surrounding yourself with partners, you know, you know, whatever industry that we're all in, you know, we can't do it alone. So, you know, so clearly my model has always been um, to develop a, a core team, which brings together broad, broad disciplines, in our case of biology, operations, engineering, regulatory strategy, market development, uh, and so forth. But it's really a commitment to partnerships that will really lead to our success. So I clearly support that for anybody in this industry. You know, how, how will you build factories? How will we gain access to customers? How will we drive our costs down is through various types of partnerships. And it really, uh, it, is a, it is a commitment that needs to run deep at the founder level, but even through the senior team level. And for new folks in the, in the space, all I can say is this food tech industry is on fire. You know, so they're, you know, you know, the, the, you know, this has been equated, and I've been saying this too for, for a while now, this is the computer industry of the 1970s. Mm. The food industry is the same thing 50 years later. Uh, we are at the front end of a global transformation of the foods that our future generations will consume. It's happening now. And um, uh, it's beginning, we saw it begin in the, in the alternative protein world, we saw it begin with uh, plant-based milks, now 15% market share. Um, growing year by year, and every category is going the same direction. You know, cheeses and other dairy products, uh, leather. You know, and, and you know, uh, even on the cosmetic side, and certainly on the meat, poultry, and seafood side. So we're seeing a total transition here, uh, and then also in vertical farming and so many other sectors. You know, there's so many ways to be successful. So don't be afraid. Find your niche. Um, and, uh, and really, uh, commit to, uh, uh, you know, this, this exciting space in, in food tech right now. It is enormously exciting. I've been involved in technology for the food industry for, I don't know, 25 plus years, and I've never seen an explosion of innovation like we're seeing now. So Lou, before we go into wrap up any, any, uh, 
other comments or, or words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? No, thank you, Gary, for this opportunity. I think um, uh, just to you know, reinforce my last comment, you know, this industry is still very young. You know, you know, so I really you know, encourage you know, any of your listeners, whether they be, you know, whether they be investors, uh, manufacturers, raw material suppliers, or innovators and entrepreneurs, you know, please jump in. It's by no means too late. It's, if anything, it's too early still. Um, there's so many opportunities for success. And, uh, you know, please uh, participate because uh, we, we all have an opportunity, frankly, to make a difference in our own lives and, and, and the lives of future generations. So you know, not only can we do something that's economically uh, beneficial, but really can be mission critical for our own survival on this planet. So please participate. That's all I can say. Thank you. Well, well said. Well said. Couldn't agree more. I'd like to thank our guest on C2C today, Lou Cooperhouse, who, who is CEO of Blue Nalu. Um, Lou, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Gary. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play.